Welcome to WDFG, Dear Final Girl Radio, the advice and horror podcast where life problems have an answer. Now here are your hosts, Lori and Tamara. Hello, Lori. Hi, Tamara. How's it going? Oh, it's going fantastic. Describe the room that we're in. Um, listen, this this is like my idea of heaven um, as long as it's in somebody else's house. <laughs> <laughs> we are in Laurie's friend Janice's um, sewing room, yes. which is covered with beautiful um, quilted items and adorable little like knickknack drawers and like the coolest sewing machines um, there's a Husqvarna, like, my lawnmower is a Husqvarna. Um, there are also, like, trucks that are Husqvarnas. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crafty Swedish people. I they have, can make everything. Oh, no, two Husqvarnas. Oh, she's got three. Then the good old singer. Yeah, I think this might be a serger. Yeah, that one's a serger over there. You are so good. See, Listen, I Listen, I have Aww. two different sewing machines. Neither of them work. I think I need to take them <laughs> in to get repaired. Uh, but yeah, I like if, if I had the time and didn't have like seven other hobbies, including this, I probably <laughs> would be sewing. But. I got distracted. Like for some reason of all the objects in this room and there are many of them. Yeah. I'm seeing a shot glass that's sitting in the corner and I feel pretty certain that that is probably mine. Where? Uh, right over there, um, to the to your right. If you look underneath the clock on the wall, and then oh. you look down, <laughs> that empty what shot glass was is my contribution to this creative oh, nice. space. Yeah. Other than what I'm doing right now. Conveniently located by the calculator. <laughs> yeah, because how could you do math why after? Were you, why were you just in here talking and? Probably. Yeah. But now I'm making a positive contribution through what we're doing right now. Absolutely. Now, I will say it does spark the idea that our, our, our spiritual podcast brother and sister, Night of the Horror File, they've started uh-huh. to refer to us as their spiritual sister, Aww, their spiritual just, podcast sisters. Really. <laughs> so I'm invoking their name because they did do an episode where they did a tequila-fueled commentary oh, wow. while watching. I apologize, guys. I cannot remember what you guys were watching. But, you know, I mean, drunken podcast, Did I'm just Brittany saying. Did Brittany fall asleep during the middle of it? She, I seem to remember something like that. Like, uh, maybe, I, I don't know. Anyways, um, I, I think that was the first one that I listened to. <laughs> and I, uh, those guys are just so much fun. Um, if we do a, a tequila-fueled commentary, it will have to be after june <laughs> yes it will it will have to be or or young. you can come over and you and max can drink and <laughs> i can just like i'll be the designated booper like i'll, I'll hit the <laughs> buttons on the you know you don't get the remotes <laughs> I barely make sense sober, so I should probably... Oh, lies. Lies. <sighs> well, 
Speaking mm. of, I don't know, this room is intense. Speaking of intense things, mm-hmm. um, the movie that we watched this week was Midsommar. Midsommar. Very intense film. Jesus. Um, inspired by a very intense letter. Um, right. So, um, we let. I'm doing an on the fly plot summary for Midsommar. Okay. Basically, the film opens, this came out in, oh God, why do I do this to myself? 2019. It came out this year, yeah. It did? Yeah, I'm looking it up on IMDb right now. Because I told myself that I would um, do a, like, figure out one of the um, characters' names, and I never did. Oh, okay, okay. So, fantastic film, very intense um, from Ari Oster, um, also yeah. the writer-director of Hereditary. So he's doing some really awesome things in, in this space. I don't like saying that phrase, but anyway, <laughs> in this space. So Midsummer opens. Um, we meet Danny. Um, she is the female protagonist throughout the film. Um, as the film opens, her very troubled sister mm-hmm. um, has killed herself and her parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, uh, at the same time, you see from just like a scene um, that Danny herself is in a relationship where her boyfriend is not exactly the most loving and supportive guy in the world. Seems like... You know, all his friends are pretty much goading him. Like, why have you not broken up with this chick yet? Mm -hmm. She's really needy. And then this tragedy happens. They continue to be in relationship. She finds out that he and his friends um, are planning to go to Sweden as a part of their doctoral dissertations. They have been invited by another one of their student friends Mm -hmm. who is a member of a... Uh, are they in Swedish commune, Mm -hmm. Um, to basically go back with him to experience this... How often does this thing happen? Is it annual? I could never nail that down. Somebody said every 90 years, and then I was like, but I don't... But then, like... If it happened every 90 years, then how would everybody know everything that was happening? Anyways, right, like, right. So they're, invi- they're invited. I think it was annual, though. Yeah. At they're least part in- of it. Right. They're invited to witness this um, really important ritual in this commune's culture. Um, nice Danny um, is invited to come along by her boyfriend, kind of a last minute deal. There's some trouble between them because he really hadn't bothered to tell her he was going to do this. She finds out they go and a lot of weird shit ensues. And that's about the best on the fly summary that I can, that I can come up with. I will say that, um, much like the episode that we did when Robin, at Creepy's Robin on Twitter. Um, much like that episode we did when Robin wrote us a letter, she suggested uh, a film for us to watch that mm-hmm. resonated with her. Same for this week. So our letter um, comes from Kim. You know her and love her on Twitter as uh, No Kim Only Zool. I love that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she is a dear friend of ours as well, and she suggested... Midsommar. 
um, and um, as a good companion to her letter, which you will now read. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Dear Final Girl, I have been struggling with career and purpose lately. What do you do with yourself when you never had any idea what to do with yourself? I grew up in a troubled home. There were brief memories of wanting to study marine biology after falling in love with Free Willy around age three or four. The next thing was a coroner or mortician by sixth grade. Depression had begun by then and my interests were solely starting to lean into morbid things. Horror films and heavy metal, not that there's anything wrong with that since I still love all of it today, but this is where the disinterest in myself also began. Horror films gave me hope. There was always that one badass woman in slashers fighting for her life, and she defeats the killer in the end. I clung to those powerful women. Home life wasn't ideal. My mother was absent or drunk most of the time by now, and my father I only saw on designated visitations, dis- visitation days. Woo, divorce. I was thrown around between sets of grandparents, aunts, and friends, and most of the time, most of the time to be babysat. By high school, all I wanted was to get out of my hometown and be happy. I had no interest in college and no certain path I wanted to pursue. By junior year, I fell in love with a guy two years older than me. I clung to him. I see now, almost 15 years later, that I desperately wanted to be happy with the man, run away, and start over. I cut off my toxic family and moved in with him. It was not a happily ever after. I spent six years of my life with this man encouraging his dreams and trying to be a part of his world. By the end, we were both neck deep in illegal activities and addicted to drugs. Our relationship was pure toxicity. In between that mass, around age 19 or 20, I was diagnosed with endometriosis. I had been dealing with crippling pain from the disease since the seventh grade. It played a huge part in my drug addiction. By 2013, my now ex-boyfriend landed himself in jail for the fourth or fifth time and was sentenced to six years. He would have to serve at least three. After some, after some time, I began to wake up from the haze and trauma of the last 10 years. I left my ex and shortly after checked myself into rehab. I've been clean from opiates and other hardcore drugs since October 20th of 2014. Whoop, whoop. Sorry, yeah. I have to we cut it and be like, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, not once have I had a desire to pick those particular substance to, substances up again. A few years after that, I met my current boyfriend. He's an old-fashioned, kind, and hardworking man. I wholeheartedly believe he loves me passionately, and I feel the same of him. This is the man I want to marry. I've also made amends with my family. I have a good relationship with all, almost all of them, even my very complicated mother, who thankfully hardly ever drinks anymore. I have a decent paying job, a roof over my head, and food in the fridge. I have so much to be thankful for, and yet... I'm terribly depressed and more often than not, uh, deeply unhappy. So many years wasted on someone else. Years wasted running away. I've conquered a lot of demons. I've got my endometriosis at the basic level of under control, which doesn't mean much. And I've turned my entire life around. Yet I'm sad. My endometriosis makes it hard to stay healthy. Every time I start consistently going to the gym and eating better, I fall out of it or injure myself, setting me back to the start. I got promoted at my job, and unfortunately, I hate it. I hate it with a passion. I am stuck in a rut of not knowing where to turn or what to do anymore. 
I want to get out of my line of work and have no idea where to begin. I have a mild interest in writing still, but cannot bring myself to start any projects. My poor boyfriend works himself to death as well, and we're currently living paycheck to paycheck. So I guess the question now is, where do we go from here? How do two tired and broken down people escape the day-to-day -day rat race to at least allow some, some more happiness in existing? Where do we go from here? In April of 2020, I turned 30. Thank the universe, 30-year-old me has come such a long way from my former self, but, well, now what? Thank you for taking the time to read this. I hope it made sense. Any advice is welcome with open ears. Sincerely, Kim. So what folks will probably think about right off the bat is just how much lengthier of a letter that we had this mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we got it from Kim, I reached out to her and immediately and was like, you needed to get that out. Yeah. Like, I know you needed to get all of that stuff mm -hmm. out. And the fact, Kim, we love you. The fact that you chose to do that, to share it with us. Yeah. And for us to have the opportunity to to talk about it in relation to something that you very clearly love and are knowledgeable about, which is horror is mm -hmm. like truly an honor and a gift. So thank you so much. Yeah, right thank off you the bat. so much for sharing. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to write these letters to, and, um, you know, some of the last couple of letters that we've had have been very personal and very revealing. Um, and, I thank both Kim and Robin for being so open about these things. Yes. Um, please know that you can write us letters at any time with anything. It does not have, you don't have to feel like you have to open your heart to us. Um, we appreciate it and we love it. Um, Definitely. Uh, but it's not required. Right, so. right. It can be about anything. It can be yeah. as long or as short. Um Write us, uh, dearfinalgirl at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. You can also direct message us um, your concern yeah. at Final Dear. Yeah. Yep. So w one of the first lines in her letter hit me so hard. Mm -hmm. It was like, what do you do with yourself when you don't know what to do with yourself? And I remember... Do I feel this way in my own life personally right now? No. Mm -hmm. But have I been there? Yes. And am I under any illusion that, you know, I won't be there again? Right. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. One of the words that jumped out to me is do. Like, what do you do with yourself when mm -hmm. you don't know what to do with yourself? And she did tie that very early on with kind of early, early thoughts she had about what she might want to do when mm -hmm. she grew up, like being a marine biologist. Um, Which the, uh, I saw a reading ra <laughs> rainbow uh, probably about the same time that Free Willy came out about a marine biologist. And for years I wanted to be a marine biologist. There was something in the air in the uh, late 80s, early 90s where, anyways, go on. No, no, that's fantastic. But we, so, and, and then now, now, so Kim um, 
she recently got a promotion. Mm -hmm. So that's something you, that's a decision to make, right? So you are presented with the opportunity for a promotion. Generally, that means more money. It also generally means more responsibility. Mm -hmm. You... You know on some level that you are agreeing to a whole new set of expectations, constraints upon your time, Mm -hmm. requests and expectations that may not be fair because it's like, oh, well, you're you're this now, you're a manager or we've promoted you, Mm -hmm. you know, now we own you, (laughs) you know, now we own you. Yeah. and so it goes goes back to this idea of of doing what do you do with yourself and that so many times our orientation is that we're defined by all the externals right we're defined by the job we're defined by our value in is kind of like what we have to show for ourselves mm-hmm. and um that that can that can be a painful trap. Yeah. That can be a painful trap. Mm-hmm. I think that um, something that goes along with that, the how we are defined, chronic illness, endometriosis, yes. being a chronic illness that is not immediately visible, um, can be debilitating. Um, and also it's very, like you break your leg and everybody's like, well, her leg is broken. And so there is a reason why she is out for this month or whatever. But I mean, out from your job or whatever, but like something like endometriosis or, uh, I struggled with migraines and depression and, you know, those can, are both things that like can severely affect your ability to even get out of bed in the morning. And, but people can't see it. Like there were times when I had to leave my teaching job, uh, because I was struck with a migraine and there were only 15 kids in the room and I could not figure out who, like of a 16 person class, I couldn't figure out who was the one missing child. Wow. And like you should, you would think, okay, you've got a list of the names you can go through, but your brain is so screwed up and pain and illness can really define you and make you feel, um, if you let it, it can define you and make you feel like you have been defined, that you don't have control and that you are, um, that you are um, put into a box that you have no control over. Right. It can make you feel different. Mm-hmm. And have have a couple of thoughts. One is, one, one thing I, I kept thinking about throughout, like, the themes in Kim's letter and with the film, is the degree to which something can be make your life both harder and in other ways it can make it more rewarding. So feeling different, illness and pain can mm-hmm. make you feel different. Experiencing a lot of, you know, a lot of not only childhood but through 
through a good part of your early adulthood mm-hmm. experiencing trauma, mm-hmm. it can make you feel different. Right. And yet, feeling different around horror, around horror films, is conversely something that is so powerful. Right. And instead of making you feel alienated, it has driven many of us to find community. Mm -hmm. So even though we're very early in the discussion, I found myself thinking of the flip side of each of each of the things that Kim talks about like oh, okay. yeah. you know how can how can feeling different be a positive because we already know how to do that because of horror films mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um trauma was and i think would you know i i'm using these words lingering ptsd mm-hmm. i'll just i'll own those words in as I think about my own life experiences and how long and how deeply they, I mean, for decades, mm-hmm. for decades. And I remember a therapist one time saying those four letters, PTSD, and it kind of shocked me because I thought, well, PTSD is like for veterans and right, I, I yeah. don't, I like what? Like I have PTSD, but I absolutely did. Because I guess the way I would define it for myself is just, I mean, this, the, the, the lingering impacts of trauma that, I mean, they're, they're with you in some way every day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like always having a weight, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so this notion of trauma, this is why Kim suggested Midsommar. Mm-hmm. We talked about how the film opened Danny, oh my God, horrible, horrible, mm-hmm. loses her, her her own sister, kills herself and her parents. Um, and I don't know if it does a little time stamp on the film, like one year later. I don't know, but you get the sense some time has passed. She's, she's continuing to have difficulty, which anyone would. It, when her sister uh, commits those acts... Uh, or I guess we don't use commit suicide anymore. What, what oh, do we say? I don't know. I well, because that. it makes it sound like a crime. Oh. So um, I, I can't remember what the proper term is now. I but didn't even know that. Before her sister takes her life, her own life, and her um, and that of her parents, um, she it is winter time and it is very dark and we see that and then we uh it turns into summertime like the the switch flips and it turns into summertime and then we realize that it's two weeks before the um the trip right so then like early june Right. Um, okay. Good. Thank you. Because I, I should have. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the fi- film is called Midsomar. I yeah, guess I yeah. should have picked up on and that. The solstice. Yeah. yeah. Um, but well, the solstice is in late June. But yeah, we we pick up. But that, and she, they talk about finals, and she said, "Well, they've given me a break this time," right. which means, like, I assume that that 
meant that it was within the same like school year right and it made she they just come off a semester Mm -hmm. and so and you know one of the things i thought about you know kim talks again i go back to the sentence what do you do with yourself when you don't know what to do with yourself and how this come this question comes out of her she links this question to her life traumas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the film I'm going to just use these words. I don't like these words. But you know that Danny, I, I just came up with a better word. We know, Danny is lost. I mean, yeah. she she's still unmoored very much mm-hmm. by what has happened. And she was struggling with anxiety before. That's right. Cause because she they had the Ativan. Yeah. Right. Um, and I just had to look up what Ativan. Ativan was for, but... What is it for? Is it anxiety? anxiety? Yeah. Okay. Um, but her sister had bipolar disorder, and then um, she has an anxiety uh, disorder of some sort. And so um, we know that she was struggling beforehand. Right. Um, and whether that anxiety was brought on by her sister's troubles or what. You know. Right. I found myself thinking because she is so there there is a there is a um a passivity to her character. I wanna instead use the word overwhelmed. She just mm-hmm. simply overwhelmed. But she makes a lot of allowances for this, I'm just going to say, dipshit boyfriend Oh, of Christian, hers. yeah. Christian. Max she, calls him the indigent man's Chris Pratt. Like, <laughs> yeah. not even the poor man's. Like, right. you know, you got nothing to your name, but you kind of look a, <laughs> a like little bit like Chris him. Hey, so, I, I was very happy um, that I thought to myself when watching this, hey... Danny isn't the only one who doesn't have things figured out here. I don't even know how it's possible that he could be at the point in his... uh, This may be a fault in the plot. How could he be at the point in his education that he is as a Ph.D. student Mm -hmm. and literally have no idea what he is going to do his dissertation on or have even really started to work on it in a right. meaningful way. It seems like he that doesn't come until later, mm-hmm. until they visit Sweden, and then he's like, oh, shit, you know. He sees these things, that these rituals that happen. He's like, I'm doing my dissertation on this. Yeah, and Josh is like, no, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not. Right, because Josh had been, he had his mapped out that he wanted right. to, like, study different pagan cultures and their rituals. And it, if I recall correctly, in the beginning when uh, we meet Christian and Mark and Pella and Josh all together, um, that um, he says... Or his friend Mark says, maybe you should be figuring out what you're doing on your thesis. Right. And then he's like, well, you know, she sounds really... Like, he's just... God, I hated Christian. And I, I think we're supposed to, right? We're supposed so to that, So that Pella, Pe- Pella, Pella, Pella is more sympathetic. Oh, Pella is so sympathetic. Yeah. Um, so as, as we talk about career, so this notion of... 
I think what is informing this path in life, I've started to think about it as the false American dream. Mm-hmm. You know how people talk, we're many decades past the origin of, of the American dream, this post-World War II, mm-hmm. yet you own a home, mm-hmm. you have some land, you have X number of kids and mm-hmm. a dog, and this is how your life goes. Right. right. We're post-death of a salesman. <clears throat> yes. And I think that... Um, Career is changing. I think that there are so many people, so many young people. God, I sound sound like I'm like a grandma or something. (laughs) Young people today, they are so burdened with student debt because they are continuing to follow an established model. Mm -hmm. Here's here is one set of expectations that society has carved out. Societal expectations, what it what it what makes sense in a society, we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah. But basically like one of these just set and accepted passes, you will graduate from high school, you will go to college, mm-hmm. you will decide your major and you will figure out what you want to do in a career for the rest of your life. Right. And that career is gonna define a big part of you. Right. And I think that now we have, we've had for a number of years now, like the gig economy, uh-huh. people are deciding to do a lot of different things. They're putting a lot of different things together mm-hmm. to form their livelihood. And in many cases, even all of those individual jobs are essentially like their side gig Mm -hmm. to what they really want want to do in their life right and this kind of touches on another this so this is like i'm kind of like talking about challenging assumptions right so another assumption is that your job is your passion that whatever you Mm -hmm. do for a living that's such a trap it really is it really is and it it might i think more and more people are moving away from that Mm -hmm. now oh my god if you can find that if your job is your passion i like all respect right all respect but how many how many millions of people are like i'm gonna quit my job and do woodworking for a living or i'm gonna quit my job and do this art thing that i've been wanting to do you know as my living and like when i quit teaching I was like well I'm gonna write for a living and it took several years for me to find to get the skills to become a business writer and then find a job where I was happy doing the sort of writing that I was doing and I wasn't being pulled in a million different directions for, well, you got to do this part as well. And you got to do this part as well. And you, you've done this before. So why don't you just take over this job that has nothing to do with the writing that you're trying to do? And even though I have that, there's still parts of me that are like, well, I'm going to like, I need to create in other ways. So the business writing that I do doesn't feed my creative self and 
I, it would take several more years of just focusing on that creative self and learning the business behind it before that would be a sustainable job. Right. So, and I think that that's something that's where I was going to with all of this is that when we say, well, I want to, I want to do this as a living. I want to work my passion. There is a business side to all of that, that is often hidden and we don't, uh, it's not fully clear <coughs> until you actually get into the middle of it and you're like, oh shit, I got to file taxes quarterly because as a independent contractor, I owe the government 30% of everything that I owe. Right. And I need to pay, really need to pay it along the way or I'll have a huge, <laughs> and you know, none of this is meant to be a deterrent. No, no, all. no, no, I, absolutely not. not. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to echo your, uh, or add on to the idea that, um, a lot of us have fallen into the trap of, well, you know, do what you love and love what you do. Right. And the rest will follow. Yeah. Maybe. Sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe nine to five, do what you like. But you don't have to love it passionately. And I think the trap there, too, is that if you love it passionately, are you beholden to the company that you currently do it for? Right. And this comes down to, like, how we define value for ourselves, how we define ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the job that I am currently in, I, I no longer write for a paycheck. Mm-hmm. I did for years and years and years. And for the first time in over 20 years, I'm in a job where writing is not, that's not what I, that's not yeah. what I do. And I have personally found, um, it has allowed me to explore we would not be doing this podcast right? <laughs> if I had stayed on that career track and uh-huh. advanced this and do that. We would not be doing this. You might be doing it, but mm. you probably wouldn't be doing it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, being in a job... Now, let's say this. If you are in a job that you are miserable in, and I think Kim expressed she is very unhappy in, in her job, mm-hmm. it's not just that it isn't her passion. She, It sounds like she really does not want to be doing it. Right. So <clears throat> that's, that's different. And I think one thing you said about, you know, it took time. You, you know... If I were to offer some specific advice here would be that when you when you want to make change it takes time and you do it as slowly and small as and as small you break that notion of how do I change my life down into the tiniest digestible piece that you can handle at any given time so that you can continue to move forward, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. believe that change is possible, and know that you can only do what you can do Mm -hmm. when you can do it. And it really is. It's like, you know, 
the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Mm-hmm. It really is mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it doesn't, nothing has to be, oh gosh. So I have talked with my therapist about this on so many occasions, which is that because I am a, I am a perfectionist, uh, I want to take on a giant project and I have an idea of what it's going to look like at the end. And so I am like all or nothing. Yeah, we're going to do this thing. And then, you know, we're going to, it's going to be amazing and we're going to get everything perfect. And then along the way you realize, oh no, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult. It's going to take a long time. It's going to, and part of my fear that it's, not going to be perfect means that I will quit along the way. And it's hard to, to stick with a long-term goal without celebrating the incremental changes. You got to celebrate the incremental changes. And I think that Kim has does celebrate a lot of the big changes that have happened in her life. Yes. Um, getting sober is incredibly difficult. Yes. Um, and staying sober is incredibly difficult. And I would hope that Kim celebrates every day that she's sober, that she has done this huge thing. And it may not feel huge, when it's like, well, you know, it's been the last 14 years or whatever. No, it's not 14 years. I think it's it was been since five 20, years. Right, yeah. right. Um, but five years is a long time. That is a long time. And it time. takes every single day in those five years. Right. You can't, you can only do it that way. And I wrote down the same thing. I thought I, I could recognize in Kim's letter that she's like, I have come so far. I have come so far. I I got my I got myself out of um, a life of addiction. Mm-hmm. I got myself out of toxic relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those relationships I was able to transform. Like she has a relationship again with her mother. Yeah. She has met this man who they sound like they, it sounds like they are the love of one another's lives. And I wrote down. She know, uh, you know, Kim knows she's come so far, but does she really know? And it got me thinking about how I don't do this either. I don't slow down, and mm-hmm. I just I wrote like, sort of like, oh my people, you know, mm-hmm. we have got, we have got to do this. Mm-hmm. We have got to slow down. We have got to think on our progress, on our victories, our joys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how small they are. None of what she talked about is small. Those are huge. And um, they are amazing. So that can be a very powerful fuel. Because mm-hmm. if you made changes like that and you made a lot of them... You can make them again. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in time where I bet Kim did not know how. We never know how. Right. You're not, you. that's the hard part. But mm-hmm. how? How am I going to do it? Mm-hmm. But we do it. Right. We do it. And, and we yeah. often do it. 
by doing the wrong things first. Yes. Um, I, I have written down career as a contract. Sorry. And it shouldn't be career as a contract. A job is a contract. A job is a contract between you and your employer. And if your employer breaks the contract or if you're, you decide that the contract is not serving you anymore, you have the option to back out of it. Yes. Um, and the contract is that you do the work and they pay you money. And if you decide, okay, this is not the work that I want to be doing, then you have the power to make the decision to change. Now, I'm not saying quit your job right now with no safety net because that, uh, that would be irresponsible of me. But you know, Kim, Kim, you know that you want to do something different, at least for your job, right? So maybe do some thinking on what that what the ideal work situation would look like. Is it that you get to do data entry all day so that you can watch a horror movie in the background on your phone? That's a great... <laughs> that That's is what great. our friend Ashley does. I Ashley, do that. <laughs> I'm not in data entry, but literally almost every day of my work life for years uh -huh. because I've been able to do... I have enough solitary time. I'm right. at my desk. I'm at my cube, whatever. Uh -huh. I've got my earbuds in. There is a horror I, I have listened to some horror movies uh -huh. more than I have watched them <laughs> because they are in my earbuds. Right. But that's right. a whole other thing. Right. And, of course, some of this has to do with what your employer will allow you to do or, you know. Right. Right. Um, I, I, I have a super, just like an overwhelming fear of being caught doing some like <laughs> just being on Twitter or anything like that while I'm at work and so it really can interfere with my writing I think it's sort of like procrastinatory that's not a word but um <laughs> anxiety like if I am looking at Twitter and anxious about somebody seeing me look at Twitter and then I can worry about all of this and not have to think about the thing that I'm supposed to be writing. Right. Because um, that's a, that's a, why is anxiety safer than <laughs> just doing the thing that makes you feel good? Yeah, it's oh. not. That is such a trap. So this made me think a couple of things and this will draw us back to the film oh, as yeah. well. <laughs> so one thing that has helped me in my work is I have begun to share, not with everybody, because mm -hmm. not everybody would understand, but I have begun to share this love of horror mm -hmm. that I have with people. And maybe, like, we're all, we're very complex human beings and we have a lot of interests. One thing that makes my work day more pleasurable for me uh -huh. and makes me feel more authentic in my work day is that I... I will talk about things that I love and that I'm interested in. Uh -huh. And I don't do it a lot, and I only do it with a few people. Right. But it makes my work self and my quote-unquote real self not feel like different people. Ah, uh, yeah. That is a huge uh -huh. thing right there. And I, I want to come back to that, but I want to draw us back to the movie. So you use the word contract as it relates to uh -huh. work. We talked a little bit earlier about the American dream and this idea of 
what what is what is normal in a society what is expected what is accepted Mm -hmm. so in the film danny and her friends go into this very different society and culture Mm -hmm. it has its rules its rituals its traditions and they are completely foreign and terrifying right to what any of them as Americans are used to mm-hmm. so very you know very early well, on in the film maybe yeah, like I wouldn't even say oh, gosh it's hard uh, yeah, I wouldn't even say it. western I wouldn't even say Americans because Simon and uh, oh that's right oh, what's her name oh I can't remember Oh, I wrote it down here somewhere, and I won't be able to. Connie, yes, Connie, his Simon and Connie are from, um, are from England. Yes. Oh, there he is, Connie. Yep, that's right. Thank you for yeah. Thank you for pointing that but, out. But uh, but like <clears throat> there is, there's something about this that feels. I almost said Druish, but. Uh, <laughs> Druidish. Funny, she doesn't look Druidish. Um, <laughs> it's the second time this weekend but I made I'm a spaseball reference. <laughs> Merchandising. Spaceballs, the lunchbox. Um, so, but the the there the foreignness comes from its like druid feeling and like uh, of the earth and pagan. Yeah, pagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the word for it, which is. Yeah, of course, Danny's boyfriend's name is Christian. And so, of course, he's not going to fit into this society. Um, And I'm sorry, I totally cut off. No, no. You had a point. No, no, that's okay. Well, well, he, uh, later on, he kind of fits in. If you know what I'm saying, because he is a chosen one. Yeah. He is a sexual chosen one. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, mm. hey, more power to you. Somebody needs to pick that guy. Get him off Danny's plate. Oh, and oh, that happens in a big he, way. I thought you meant that he fits into the bear. Oh, I didn't mean, I was meaning more like sex. Yeah, you know? yeah, he yeah. He fits into that Well, girl. you know, his genetics were fine. <laughs> some, at, at some point, one of the elders says... <laughs> We sometimes have to bring in uh, um, outsiders for genetic um, refresh yeah, for breathing. Yeah. Yeah, genetic for breathing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you didn't pick him a good a good one in him because maybe physically, but you know, yeah, not other qualities. Anyway. Yeah. So one of the first. So so this community operates under a completely different different set of contracts um, and expectations. Um, One of the first contracts, rituals they see, is this older man and older woman in the community. What we learn later is they've reached the age of 72. Yeah. And they jump to their deaths. Uh Because that is part of how this society functions. The the woman, and I can't remember her name, she explains, we view this, like, and here it is, how a society defines itself mm-hmm. um, for its constituents. We view this as a positive and a celebration. We... We don't, we don't, rather than, than, rather than growing 
old to the point of being feeble, mm-hmm. no longer and having a burden on the yes. Yeah, then the we group. we make this choice. Uh-huh. We make this choice. I found myself. I mean, that was horrifying yeah. when they jumped. And very and they gory. they do not hold back, yeah. No, they literally do not. It was very gory. It was horrifying. But I very quickly felt myself go into this mode of, like, this is another culture's way mm-hmm. of doing things. Now, <clears throat> I tested that. I tried to test that theory throughout the film. So, like, am I feeling groovy about everything they do? No, and I'm being being a American, <laughs> you know, I'm probably not going to feel groovy about everything they do, but you could, I could separate certain aspects of the culture and go, you know what, this is a whole, maybe this is a whole hell of a lot healthier than what we do. Yeah. We, we actively, we, we don't want people to die so badly that we will we will bring we will essentially do everything possible to wrench their body back into life when their body is actively trying to die yeah um is is that cool is that the is that a mo- is that the best model i i don't know but it's the accepted one it's in our society one. it's the accepted one yeah. yeah i think that that's really interesting especially since josh and i keep wanting to call him cheaty because that's his character on um the good place william jackson harper's character josh <laughs> who has decided that this is what he's doing for his dissertation. And he's had this set. Oh, yeah. He's had this set. And then Christian's like, oh, yeah, but you're doing a lot of different cultures, so it's fine if I just do this one. Right. You're a smarmy little (laughs) D-bag. I don't know why I'm censoring myself all of a sudden. But when, when the couple jumps from the cliff, we have two opposing, uh, three, well, I guess four opposing viewpoints in that one scene. You have the group. Yes. Who is all, you know, who are all very happy when the first woman dies instantly. Right. Right. She smashes her skull on the rock. She dies instantly. And then the old man uh, went down feet first, and Max is like, "No, oh, you don't want to do that." Yeah, it's gonna not gonna turn out. Well. Yeah, nope. Um, and that guy, you can see the whole group in extreme pain with him. Yes, and you do a ritualized like expression of pain, right. in alignment with him. So that's the first group. The first group is you know the society. I. I hesitate to call them a cult, but that's the commune, I guess. Um, Then the second is Simon and Connie because they react, you know, entirely opposite. Then you have Josh, who is, who knew what was going to happen because the night before he asked Pella, um... You, it's a what? Is it? 
are they really going to? And Pella just says, you'll see tomorrow. It took the second time me watching it to be like, oh, oh, shit. And all the drawings. Like, if you look at those drawings, it's yeah. like, it lays out the whole Everything's damn thing. Everything's yep. <laughs> You know, but you can't catch that early on. Right. Um, the... So, okay, so that's the three. There's Josh who comes in as the anthropologist, knows what's what the word means and what to expect, and is so he's not super shocked about it. Um, and then you get the internalized view from Danny who sees her parents. Yes. Or her sister. Like, she connects this with the suicide of her sister and the ritualized... And, like, the taking away of her parents. So the death of her parents is sort of brought back to her. Christian doesn't seem to have any sort of reaction. Like, he's shocked, but he doesn't seem to have any sort of reaction. And Mark misses it completely. Right. And his shock... Christian's shock turns to intellectual fascination. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. he has found his thing. Right. You know, it's it's interesting. So, so by calling out the four, it's like we have these different interpreters, mm-hmm. right? And there was a, okay, so that again, that again goes back to this idea of expectation. The importance of how we view ourselves and a situation being really paramount. Right. Um, because so many external factors can change many beyond, you know, our control. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that we're always the most accurate interpreters of experience, especially our own? Frequently not. Because we are all a collection of our own individual patterns and rituals that have been formed from our upbringing. Right. Um, so, you know, I guess this, this makes me think about, you know, just trying on different lenses, like trying to look at, at things in different ways. I've been visualizing a lot lately, and a, a situation happened just yesterday that really upset me. And I was very focused on one aspect of it, and I was with a friend, and he brought out another aspect, which I had not even thought about, and it really hit me. It was like, I'm just here I am again. Like, I am lo- I'm looking through this one lens. So I'm trying to visualize any situation as if it's almost like, it's a it's a field mm-hmm. and there are many different players on the field mm-hmm. and so i think about all of did the did you just diff- make a football reference well i didn't mean to it can be <laughs> you know yeah, <laughs> it yeah, can yeah. be a game board it right, can right, be whatever yeah. but this way of externalizing to help process to help better process mm-hmm. things um, one opinion that i had changed when I watched Midsommar the second time. So Josh is like super pissed. Like, how can you pick the same freaking dissertation topic as me? Yeah, you knew this. You know. Yeah. But then I thought to myself, why get pissed about it? Like, really, like, that doesn't change what you 
already love to do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change what you have to do to fulfill your requirements. Mm -hmm. And it isn't it isn't going to change how you are assessed by an external body of people who will determine if you have a credible dissertation and if you have defended it. Mm -hmm. You have defend. That's where like his identity is threatened. His mm -hmm. identity is threatened because mm -hmm. somebody else is doing the same or similar thing. Right. And I thought differently about it the second time. I'm like, interesting. save yourself some stress and don't worry about what the fuck he's doing. Yeah. Is it Anne Lamott who says, keep your eye on your own page? Yeah. Yeah. Keep your eye yeah. on your own paper, you know, and focus on what you're doing. That... Oh God, that's something that I struggle with a lot, trying to figure out whether, and part of this is my perfectionism, that I try to use other people's success or lack thereof to gauge my own success or lack thereof. Yes. And what's, that's a trap. That's it always going to be a trap because you never see the work that goes on behind the scenes. You never see, like, you don't know whether I'm, you know, if, if we're at work together, you don't know whether I'm, like, listening to a podcast and just pretending like I'm researching or if I actually am spending two hours doing hard research in order to get the thing done. Like, it's the latter <clears throat> Always, <laughs> of course. Never I would never expect anything less. Actually, I can't listen to podcasts while I work because I can't have words going on while I'm trying to create and whatever. Um, but keeping your eye on your own page and your own uh, your own set of problems can. We talked about this with Halloween, and I just wrote down before that the fact that there are all these images going on, and it, like there, there's pictures all all in the place that they're staying. There are other pictures, like um, Connie and Simon's friend, Connie or Simon was like, "Hey, what's that?" and they're friend who's from the commune said well let's go look at it and you see the whole story of how the woman causes somebody to fall in love with her to right. be able to you know copulate with him and so the situational awareness if you're aware of mm. what's going on around you then you are much more and your your eyes are on your own page you're much more able to deal with the problems that come up and celebrate your wins yes because that's your book and i hate to i don't want to make a cheesy metaphor but you can do two things by keeping your eye on your own page you can focus on what you have achieved what you want to change and you can also recognize it's just a page it's a page in a chapter of many chapters of the book that is your life. Just like the books that are in the temple. Yes. And they're all written by, <laughs> they're sound and fury written by a fool, right? They're literally written by this um, mentally challenged 
member of the society who has been inbred to the point where he's not like, you know, he's finger painting on the pages. And if nobody's there to read the story, if nobody's there, like they had thousands of volumes of that book all in the temple where the books are. And Josh goes in to take the pictures of the last book, but that's when he gets killed. Right. Because he was so worried about what was on their pages. Did you get the impression that what the Oracle, I don't know if they call him that, if, that what yeah, the Oracle yeah. was writing, was it sensical or is this again we go down to interpreters? Does a community choose, we're, we're going to decide that this means something. Is the meaning actually coming from, what is the source of the meaning? I'll say it that way because then that's a good broad, that, that broadens it back out to Kim's letter as well. Like where does the source of meaning lay? Uh, so I don't know. I don't remember. Because Reuben who is the oracle, they say that he is unclouded by normal cognition. And so... For that, I, th I think that the, the meaning lays where we put it. And this, this, is, this is a bit of a tangent, but I literally just came across this quote, and I put it on Twitter, and it's by one of my favorite humans, who I like to reference a lot, Alejandro Jodorowsky, who is a creator who is he's literally expressed himself creatively, I think, every way you can imagine. <laughs> um, he, did, he, he tried to make the movie Dune. I think I've told you about that documentary, mm, Jodorowsky's mm -hmm, Dune. Mm -hmm. So he is very active on social media. He's 91 years old. He just went through some major health situation. Mm -hmm. And he has documented it, documented, yeah, documented it yeah. very publicly and kind of talking about his journey along the way. He put a post on Facebook the other day. Anybody can follow him. It's in, like, Spanish, but you can hit that little translate button. Yeah, yeah. And he talks about this notion of, like, I'm, I'm a crazy old man. And then he goes to, dis to basically describe all these reasons why that is the opposite of what he is. He's actually not troubled by normal cognition, whatever mm -hmm, that, the mm -hmm, quote that you just mm -hmm. said. So unclouded by unclouded normal. Unclouded <laughs> by normal cognition. And frankly, most of our quote-unquote normal cognition is a bunch of freaking noise. Yeah, and rules in rules expectations upon us by other people yes yeah. so he says he says compared to infinite unity personal problems have stopped getting me they are only momentary obstacles tolerable difficulties because they are not part of my essential being if i have debts and he's this is metaphor you know it could be literal or metaphor if i have debts i pay them as i can without losing calm Yes, dear friend, I accept. I'm a crazy old man. So, I just, I love that. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it gets into these broader notions of leaving behind how people define us, how we define ourselves, what we, what is a, what is a problem that can have a solution. 
and how that is so very different than, in my particular worldview, the expansiveness of who we are. Right. I don't follow a particular denomination. I'm not a religious person. A lot of people say, I'm not these things, but I am spiritual. I would say that about myself. Mm -hmm. So it's a different way. I incorporate that as a different way of framing. Right. Framing how we kind of move through the narratives of our lives. So I have a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Danny stays? I had not thought about that question before. I would answer it to say, I don't think she would need to stay. Oh, okay. Because she has had a catharsis. Mm-hmm. She can barely, nobody can bring up anything about her family dying. She loses it. Every time in the movie, anybody tries to talk about it. She cannot even stand Uh to think about it or talk about it. She absolutely has a catharsis. And of course, the catharsis is... She she is chosen as the May Queen, ultimately chosen as the May Queen. Mm-hmm. The May Queen has the final selection. There are a certain number of people who are to be sacrificed. Have been called, yeah, yes. along the way. Some called, some brought in to be <laughs> sacrificed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she makes the final decision as May Queen who will be sacrificed, someone from inside the community or someone from the outside, the outside person is Christian, her D-bag boyfriend. Um, And she chooses him. (laughs) Yeah, which is, like, I was both surprised and not surprised by that. And... Okay. Um, What do you think? (laughs) You know, I don't know, but I... Because I have been so distracted by the introduction of the bear in act two and the letdown of what happens to the bear or the bear's use in the plot points here. Talk about, describe that. Okay, so in act two, Simon and Connie and everybody are kind of going around and somebody says... Simon, Connie, and Danny and all of her friends are kind of walking around. And I think it's Mark. There's a bear in a cage out in the middle of the field. And Mark says, Sir, are are we, is just nobody going to mention that? And they just keep walking. Right. They're like, well, there's a bear in a cage. And so my thought is, okay, you interest, you know, is it, uh, who is it? Um, Why can I not remember his name? The seagull... The, the playwright. Jonathan Livingston Siegel. No, the, 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 anyways. Rhyme of the Ancient the, Mariner. No, the, the Russian, um, uh, Is it Chekhov? Yeah, Chekhov. Chekhov's gun. Yeah, Chekhov's gun. You introduce a gun in Act 1, it better go off by Act 3, Yeah. Right? Joe Bob talks about Chekhov's gun. Just gotta put that in there. He talks <laughs> yeah. about that a lot. Yes, Chekhov's so, gun. So, yeah, so this is Chekhov's bear. Or (laughs) Aster's bear. Like, this was the... I was so let down by this, and maybe that's why I... 
like so we see the bear in the cage and you're like who's gonna fight the bear mm-hmm. as people start dying you're like well somebody's gonna have to fight the bear and we even see things about it in the drawings and oh Oh, at the beginning when Danny is sleeping in her bed in the dorm, there's this beautiful picture, poster above her head of a little girl leaning down and either touching the bear on the nose, giant bear, little oh. girl leaning in and either touching the bear on the nose or kissing the bear. Like, boop. Um, yeah. But, okay, so we see the the bear. There's a bear all through this. And I'm sure the bear is supposed to stand for her trauma and her, you know, she's keeping it caged up when they first get there. I thought that somebody was going to have to fight the bear. And I kept thinking, well, they're going to make the May Queen fight the bear. They're going to make, you know, Christian fight the bear. And then what they do is somebody kills the bear off screen. And then they... uh, take out all the bear's innards and put a drugged Christian Christian inside the bear and sew him up in the bear, which is fucked up. Yes. In its, you know, in its own way, it's fucked up because Christian like is like locked in. He can't speak or move because of whatever they blew into his face. Right. Um, But then, I mean, symbolically, of course, they're wrapping the ex-boyfriend in her trauma. Right. And then she chooses to burn the trauma in the, you know, the A-frame house, the sun house or whatever it is. You summarized that so (laughs) well. Like, you encapsulated all of that I once wrote a thesis. Yes. <laughs> uh, a master's thesis on literature, so, you know, I've had a little, a little, practice. Bit, a little bit of practice. You also, knew- I was an English teacher, so right. doing this, this is what gets me yes. amped up. This is what we do. I'm, and, I'm sweating now. And and me over well, here, because I, I, I'm sitting here as we're recording this, being incredibly distracted by like, oh, they stuffed him inside just like Han did with Luke in The Empire Strikes Back when he finds him out on the frozen tundra of Han and has to stuff him, you know, he uses the lightsaber to To, slice him open, get the innards open, and he's like, here, kid, you know, it doesn't smell very good, but it'll keep you alive. Right. I thought these things smelled bad from the outside. Anyway, I had to have a Star Wars moment there. I apologize. But um, uh, but so, it's the opposite with uh, with poor Christian, yes, this, not that, so poor. Empire Christian. Strikes Back was about keeping him alive. So your this goes back to your question. I gave my thought. Did I think that Danny stayed? And I just I don't think she would have needed to. Okay. So what got me is that Pella says earlier on in the movie. Does Christian feel like home to you? And he keeps trying to, and he ends up having the full conversation with her. This is my home. My parents died in a fire. I came here and it became my family and I got to choose my family. And now I wanted to bring you here because I wanted to give you the same opportunity to choose your family, to choose your home. And when he said, 
does he feel like home to you? Like, that was the sweetest thing. That was like, oh, well, you know, I'm okay if she ends up with Pella. Pella would be an amazing boyfriend. Yeah. He would be an amazing boyfriend. Like, well, the Swedish, you know, accent is adorable. Yeah. But, like, other than the fact that he grew up in a cult and he brought people back (laughs) to get killed in said cult, he is an incredibly in tune person very sensitive yeah and i did he use the word held i thought he said i and even as i was listening to it it's like i don't know what word he is using but i thought he said i have always felt held Mm -hmm. and then i thought to myself i thought about kim's letter thought about i mean that's what we are all trying to get to what makes us feel held or home Mm mm-hmm and how can we spend as much time there as possible? Mm-hmm. That still doesn't mean that figuring out the job that you want is the answer and will therefore solve it. No. Because I'm, I personally am in a situation right now where I have moved from a home that I have lived in for almost 14 years I'm living with a friend now. I'm living here temporarily. Um, with all I, the quilts you with can With all the quilts in this amazing room and multiple sewing machines yeah. and my shot glass in the corner. <laughs> and I don't know, I literally do not know what my next living arrangement is going to be. Mm-hmm. I think I know, but there is a possibility it may not be that. Mm-hmm. And what I have begun to tell myself is that I I am home like I am home so Mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter and look again first world problems right I have a roof over my head right I have a good paying job that I like there are a lot of factors that I am not actively contending with Mm -hmm. but I am also going through a divorce there are a lot of factors I am contending with Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. My circumstances are in upheaval. I am not because for me, home is just wherever I am. There's this great line. I know that line. sounds probably really cheesy. No, but. not at all. <laughs> there's there's this great line that I, uh, in an Ani DeFranco song that I think about all the time. And actually, it's kind of what my novel is about. But she says... Um, when you sit right down in the middle of yourself, you're going to want to have a comfortable chair. And, um, and she said, uh, and she says something like, um, and something your soul, cause when you get real old, you're going to be housebound there. Oh my gosh. So, and like, I've got chills now just saying that, um, I have to look up the the song for you, but the, we can do it when we tweet out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, that's something I think about a lot because, you know, like we've said all through this episode that we are often so defined by what we do or who we're with or, um, 
our hobbies or what people see of us on the internet and what people hear about us in podcasts and, you know, th all of these things that, that kind of build up, I'm going to, we're in a room with quilts, build up the, the quilt that we wrap around ourselves, the May Queen's mantle, you know, she's right. wearing this mantle of flowers and this huge crown but she's in the middle of that. Right. And if you can't be happy just sitting with yourself and like knowing who you are, and some of that has to do with gratitude. Some of that has to do with counting all the things that you've done and being happy for have done them. You know, all of the things that you have survived play into that and a gratitude like a gratitude journal is something that you know that I have done in the mm -hmm, past that mm -hmm, people do it's mm -hmm. a way of you know each day you know ideally at the beginning of the day you write even if it's just one thing but write one thing two things three yeah. things that you're grateful for that helps us be in the present mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before that when you sit and you are still with yourself and you ask yourself, do I have any problems right now? Oftentimes you can, it is possible to answer that question, yes, even when things are swirling around you because you're just, you're just right where you are. Yeah. You know? yeah I mean, we talked about last, uh, last full episode, um, you know, just stopping and feeling your toes. Yeah. You know, just, and mindfulness um, can help with that because when I think that one of the things that is a trap about what should I be doing is that when you're so concerned about making the future look like something that you miss what's right here right now. Right. And right. that it can be really helpful either through gratitude journal or meditation or mindfulness practices or eat like, God, I, <laughs> I'm almost ashamed to say this, but fuck it. I'm we have too no old. Secrets I'm, here. I, yeah, I'm too old <laughs> to be ashamed about this stuff. When I was in high school, very early high school, I had a friend who was into Wicca and like witchcraft. And I have these dreams even now of, like I've, yeah, I've let, loaned you my tarot cards and, um, like I have these, there's this part of myself that wants to be just like a little hedge witch, you know, like just burning candles for intention and doing cleansing things. And actually I've started looking into shadow work, which is really not anything other than sitting with the parts of yourselves <laughs> sitting with the parts of yourself um, or yourselves, you know, if you have several selves, <laughs> we all have several selves that you would normally refuse to look at. That is wonderful. And I, I have a book recommendation. Ooh! Yes. Go and on. And I'm is. writing it not in my dear final girl <laughs> book, but my like bullet journals. So but we that... will tweet this out as okay. well. So there is a fantastic book and it is by Robert Bly, B L Y, and it is called 
the little book on the human shadow. And it is indeed a little book. It is very small. It is not very long. And it is about this very thing, going into your shadow self. And, I mean, if it is... Okay, and Kim, all of you listening out there, we have a leg up on this because we love horror. We are going into our shadow selves Mm -hmm. all the time, whether we're actively thinking about that or not but that is what we are doing go on yeah well that is what we were doing and i i think i'll have it mine will be a different thread so you go ahead oh i was gonna say that like that perhaps i keep going back and forth as to whether i think this is a horror movie i know it is disturbing and because there are Differences, and I know that it's supposed to. It's it's manipulative in, in in how it makes us feel, but I kind of wonder if that society is in touch with their shadow selves, and whether they're like they have integrated that into, if not daily life, at least they set aside a part in the summertime, like. All right, let's do this fucked up shit. <laughs> and I, I, I got to mention something because there's all these photographs of the May Queens. So I must have heard it wrong that it's not every 90 years. Right, because he had one. He showed her. Didn't he show her, Danny, early on? a picture of a May Queen or talked about the May Queen and then of course he ends up drawing her as the which May should have Queen. been when I viewed it the second time it's like oh well, I should have been able to figure out she was going to be the May Queen oh yeah, yeah. you know but I, I miss these things sometimes you know um so parting thoughts you shall we move to parting thoughts uh, sure. Go first. I got a couple. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Well, I want to go, and I think that that a lot of the things we have talked about will will help answer this question. Have helped answer this question, at least I hope so. One of the things Kim said in her letter or asked is, "How do two tired, broken down people escape the day to day rat rat race to allow, at least allow some?" more happiness in existing Mm. and a couple things jumped out at me one is um that word escape in itself is a bit of a trap Mm -hmm. so if we begin if we can begin to try to think of ourselves as perhaps freer then what our circumstance defines what our lack of clarity about our circumstance defines then the feeling of needing to escape from something i it can diminish over time yeah it can even diminish quicker like i think i may have mentioned this before i had a bad experience a couple of years ago on some level i had to decide to literally surrender just sort of every notion that I had of myself Mm -hmm. and that like it may sound weird but like I feel like it fixed me in some way that I didn't feel before Um, isn't that part of um, the 12 steps 
surrender to a higher power. That is or that like is the part first of, the 12 of steps. or I don't know. It, that's one of the most important parts of the twelve right, steps. Right, admitting your admitting your powerless. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that does come from that tradition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think you know the other thing is that we're not promised any length of time to figure things out. <sighs> And so um, it can be a, a source of hope that there will be more time. We have more time to make our lives look mm-hmm. the way we want them to. Mm-hmm. That can also contribute to the feeling of the trap. Mm-hmm. Because time can either feel like your friend or your, your enemy. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if, if we don't... Um, you know, almost like you walk through your life as as if each step before you is being created as you step, then it it I think it helps you find and create more meaning as you're going along, which is kind of how we have to do it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, Kim points out in her letter she's going to be thirty this year. And these big milestones can feel so huge. Um, But I like to find comfort in the fact that um, every woman that I know who is over the age of 30, and especially women who are like in their 60s and 70s, they don't feel like today is going to be the end of their life. You know, they feel like they still have another chapter. And so 30 feels real old. um, And I'm just a few years short of 40. And that feels real old to me. But I know that when I was 30, I was like, well, I got to get things going. And now it's kind of like, well, I got plenty of time. So I, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, um, at least for women, especially, we have these sort of, we often have these biological imperatives. Well, if I don't get these things done, if I don't have kids by this point, then I'll never have kids. Well, who says you got to have kids? Right. You know? Um, and maybe you can adopt or... Right. Maybe, yeah, right. Or maybe you become your own kid. Right. Shadow work. Yeah. Yeah. And that most of the women that I know felt like their lives started to, like, as they got up to 30, they were like, oh, I'm running out of time, running out of time. And then once it goes past, you're like... No, I got, I got plenty of time. Yeah. I got plenty of time. So I had a point in my mid forties where I literally, I didn't, I did not have any dreams anymore. I couldn't conceive of having dreams. Mm-hmm. There was not like dreams at night, but right, like goals. Like literally yeah. goals. Like everything felt futile. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm 45 if I live to 87 or whatever, I've got to keep doing this for another mm-hmm. 40 years. I cannot live 
the next 40 years of my life this way. I'll never make it. I'll never make it. I've I've got to, I don't know that I said to myself, I've got to find something. Mm-hmm. I mean, so often that's where it starts, and it's fine if it starts there. Right. It's absolutely fine. I mean, I have things. I, you and I had this podcast. Yep. We both write. We have things. Right. The things are important. But I, I do remember, you know, and I would say, like, Kim, at the age of 30, oh, you could be well on your way to being 15 years ahead of finding happiness than mm-hmm, I, than I mm-hmm, was. It mm-hmm. took me, it took me many more crashes and burns, right. you know. And, um, and I'm afraid at the beginning of today's episode, I started talking like, and it takes a long time. And, but being aware of the steps that you're taking on the path to the things that you want to do. And I, I, I know right now in Kim's letter, she seemed to be uncertain as to what those things are, right? Um, I think she brought up writing. Uh, my, like the very, God, go out and read Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. And Lamott's Bird by Bird, and there's a great brain pickings that kind of, um, brainpickings.com, that has sort of a condensed version of really good quotes in it. But Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird talks about if you want to be a writer, you got to sit your ass in the chair and just write. Yes. And Anne Lamott is great too. I think that you'd really like her, Kim, because. She is also a recovering, um, she's recovering alcoholic. Um, she, or she is in recovery. Um, she is a writer. She, um, kind of came in, in Bird by Bird. She talks about how she came to the type of writing that she does through a million different other things. Right. Um, That's a wonderful thing to point out. And here's the other thing. If you want to be a writer, be one. Like, it, you are a writer if you write mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. you self-define. Mm-hmm. So, um, go. I, I know that's important to Kim because it's, it's mm-hmm. come up before we've talked about it. So, you know, do that. Find, uh, you know, c- carve out... You gotta carve out. You you gotta do it. You gotta carve out that space. Read Big Magic. Okay. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic because it talks about how being a creative is about sitting down and creating. Is about the process of creating and releasing the idea that it has to be of any sort of quality. Like write shitty first drafts. I think that's also Anne Lamott. Write that shitty first draft, right? But you can't edit something that you haven't written yet. That is wonderful. And something that makes me continue to write is by reading other writers who are so shitty who have gotten published. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I'm like, well, if this guy can do it, then why can't I? And if publishing is something that's important to you, and it, it definitely was and it is to me, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the blessing and the curse of writing today is that so much of, 
it's easier to be a published writer faster on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, you will probably not get paid. Most people aren't getting right. paid, right. but that's probably not why you're doing it. But it does. It I find that it is a. Um, it's easier. To, it's easier to get your stuff out there in the mm-hmm. digital. 